Well, how exciting. People getting baptized. Hopefully I don't back up and fall in. If I do, it's okay. We'll just all have to finish wet. Um, so, so exciting. Um, and what great timing that we did not plan, that it was Youth Sunday last week and then baptisms of youth this week. God just sometimes plans things. I mean, that was awesome. And um, next month, we're going to do another baptism. And it's really exciting. Uh, we have somebody who came to our church from somewhere else who'd become a believer and has not been baptized yet. And then another person who just showed up and started coming to the church, had a religious background, and as they sat and just listened to the preaching, realized, man, I've been religious and I've been in church, but I'm not a Christian, and has committed their life to following the Lord. And so it's super exciting. I am looking forward to um, next month, too, celebrating more people coming to know the Lord. So uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And uh, today, we are going to be going through this next passage in 1 Corinthians, and it is super powerful. Um, this passage really emphasizes for us that truly understanding the gospel brings humility into our life. Um, and uh, that's super important, and especially when you think about the context of the Corinthian church. So God had gone into this city through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and he had reached this incredibly sinful city, like Las Vegas, worse than Las Vegas. And Paul goes in, and he preaches the gospel, and people have been saved. And when you look at the church of 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the Corinthian church, First and Second Corinthians, and even what happens in the book of Acts where God's preaching the gospel, the Corinthian church... Um, among Bible scholars and preachers, they always say, oh, man, that's the terrible church. That's the one that didn't appreciate Paul. They were doing all the things wrong. That was a difficult ministry. And in fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul is talking to Apollos, who ministered there. And he's saying, Apollos, you've got to go back. You need to go back there. He's urging him to go back and minister to the Corinthian church. And uh, he just ends the book, He's, and Paul says, man, I, I urged Apollos to go, but he was in no way willing to go back. And so Apollos is just like, Paul, I ain't going back there. And people contrast the Corinthian church with the Philippian church. They loved Paul. They financially supported him. In fact, Paul talks about how he wouldn't take money from this Corinthian church. He says, I won't take money from you. In fact, I'm going to let the Philippians give money, and I'm going to let them pay me because you're not spiritually mature enough for me to take money from you. And so that's kind of this church, and often people feel like, oh, man, that Corinthian church, they were a thorn in Paul's side. But what we, when you really think about that and when you really look at this, when you really listen to Paul's heart, they were not a thorn in his side. He loved this church. He was amazed by the powerful things that God had done, the way he saved them from a terribly sinful culture. I mean, it was just a miracle looking at this church. And Paul didn't take money from them, not because out of some kind of animosity, but he wouldn't take money from them because that would be a hindrance to their spiritual growth. He loved them so much that he got a job so he could be their pastor. And then he waited until somebody else supported him. Paul loved this church. And it's amazing because somebody comes to Paul 
And they just tell him, hey, there's a lots of quarrels, there's lots of problems in the Corinthian church. And so Paul writes to correct those things. And he starts in chapter 1. It's amazing. The first thing that Paul does is to preach about the theology of salvation. You know, there's so many people who they just kind of grab this doctrine or that doctrine and they feel like, oh, you know, we can be Christians and believe different things. And just we all kind of approach things, you know, however we approach it. Oh, you don't believe how the Bible describes the world was created. It's okay. We get to have different views. Oh, uh, how does God work? Is God sovereign? Is he, God, is he not sovereign? Oh, it doesn't really matter. We just, we all have our positions. And what the Apostle Paul does is he actually writes to them and says, no, if you're having problems in your life, it's because you don't understand right theology. And then he explains to them the gospel, like not amazingly complicated things, not these, you know, you know, really deep theological concepts. I mean, it is deeply theological, but he actually just starts with, who are you in Christ? And in explaining that, he lays a foundation for right living. Anytime you and I don't believe the truth, anytime we reject the truth, anytime we pick, we choose to believe something that makes us feel better rather than believing what God says is true, it damages us. It damages our life. And so the Apostle Paul is going to lay this out. And one of the things that is really cool is the Apostle Paul has a sense of urgency. And it's an urgency that you and I are supposed to have. As we think about Resurrection Week is coming next week, right? Um, we start with Palm Sunday, and then the week after that is Easter Sunday. Those are some of the most attended Sundays um, in churches. And this is an incredible opportunity for you to be praying about who can I invite to church? And it's really important that you actually understand what Paul is going to say in the first few chapters of Corinthians. Because if you don't understand this, it's going to affect your ability and the effectiveness of you reaching people for Christ. One of the things that we're going to learn is that when we think about people and we try to change God's word, we try to change the gospel, we try to make it acceptable, we remove the offense. When we think to ourselves, oh man, if I tell people that, they would never believe, they would never want to come, that would offend them. Sometimes people committed to living a sinful life, we don't want to talk to them about that. Oh my goodness. Tell people that what they're doing is wrong, they won't like that. See, there's a difference between being prideful and arrogant about those things and not being willing to tell people what God says. Anytime we change the gospel, anytime we change what God says, we actually remove people's ability to be saved. And also, sometimes we get discouraged when we get rejected. You, you tell people the truth and sometimes they get mad and reject it and say, I don't want that. But that's actually not a problem with what we're saying. That's how people respond. Some people accept, some people reject. It's not our job to control people's response. It is our job to tell people what God says.
And as we consider the gospel, that is going to bring <laughs> humility. And this is one of those areas that people struggle with. This is one of those doctrinal issues that is a challenge. And so let's, uh, let's jump in and let's read this passage. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. And this is what it says, and we're going to see this, that we have been saved to live for God's glory, not for our own glory. We exist for God's glory. Let's read this. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. And we've already looked at how um, the, this chapter 1 started with calling, where Paul says that God called him to be an apostle. So God saved Paul for a purpose, to be an apostle. And we were reminded that if God saved you, he saved you for a purpose. There are many people who are Christians. Uh, they come, they've come to Christ, but they have not laid hold of God's purpose for their life. And God has a, a, a significant purpose for you. And then it goes on in talking about calling in those opening chapters of 1 Corinthians is that God called the Corinthians. Paul tells them, God has called you to be saints. They are saints. They are holy because of Christ, not because of them. And then we've gone through the gospel message and how it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in verse 22 through 24, it just says Jews demand signs and, and Gentiles demand wisdom, but we don't give people what they want. We give them the gospel. They demand signs and they demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are called. If God is working in your heart, when, when God is drawing a person and they hear the gospel, then that is the power of God for salvation. God saves people when we deliver his message. Uh, how often do people go to church? God's working on their heart. He's drawing them. He's calling them. But people in churches and their neighbors are too afraid to tell them the gospel because they think, man, if I tell them this, if I address the sin issues in my, their life, if I tell them what God says about salvation, they won't like it. I was just talking to somebody who got saved, and it was a person who grew up in church, and they were just telling me, man, I became a Christian. I Actually, I had this Christian friend, and as I look at them, I actually think they are a Christian. We were best friends. And she was just saying, I wonder, what was she doing all those years of my life while we were friends and when we went to church together? She never said anything about all these things in my life. So she finally gets saved and she looks back and she says, where were my Christian friends? And it's because people, they don't understand that the gospel is powerful. So anyway, all that out of for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many, many were of noble birth. So Paul's just going to look at them, and he's already just right before this said, God's wisdom is powerful, more powerful than yours. Worldly wisdom is foolish. And then he says, think about yourselves. You're not that special. 
<laughs> That's not the message we're supposed to tell, right? We tell everybody, your God doesn't make junk. You're a wonderful person. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're not that amazing. He says, not many of you. Now, this is the cool thing. He says, not many. Not many of you were wise, powerful, or noble. Here's the thing. You know what Paul's doing in this passage? He's actually teaching a passage from Jeremiah. So Paul's now talking about their salvation. He reaches into the Old Testament, and he's going to teach them this. Um, let me read this verse, Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not, not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. So what God is going to say is nobody should be prideful because of what they have or what they can do. Instead, our confidence should lie in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Our confidence should not be when we sit down with someone, I can figure out how to talk to this person in a way that will save them. God, I know you said all these things, but that's going to be offensive and that won't work. Let me come up with what I think will work. You know what you do when you're talking to people, sharing the gospel with them? You pray for them. You find verses in Scripture, and you read those verses to them. And you ask them, read this. Read this. What is this saying? And yes, help them understand it. Explain it to them. How often do people counsel, share the gospel, have conversations, and God's Word's not in it? Now, it's not that we use the Bible like um, a secret chant or that we're superstitious about it or that we go into a crowd and we just get a verse and we read it over a loudspeaker and we think it's going to magically change people. It's not that. But it is that God's truth is powerful to change people. So um, think about yourself. If we were to take everybody in this church and we were to line people up, and say, let's put the really talented, smart, rich, powerful people over here, and let's line up from the rich and powerful and famous and gifted and talented, and then let's go to the other side and we'll put the least talented people over there. Um, if we were to line people up like that, where would you put yourself? You know, it's kind of, uh, isn't it awesome that our salvation is not based on how amazing we are. I was thinking about mental genius. You know, I just looked a few things up. So these are some really incredibly smart people. Um, this, this, uh, this first gentleman, I can't even pronounce his name, but he's a Spaniard, and he was on his way to Germany for the world championship of, of uh, memorization, and he was kind of bored, and he thought, you know, it would be interesting if I gave all my speeches in German, but I don't know German. So he grabbed a German dictionary, and he, met, he learned German in an hour and 40 minutes. And he says he did it by memorizing all of the important German words on that plane. Man, that guy's smart. This other gentleman's a chess player. 
He is so smart that they blindfolded him. And if you're a chess player like me, this is amazing to you. And they gave him 48 chess boards. And then he walked around to those 48 chess boards and he played all 48 chess boards without ever looking at the board. He was blindfolded. And one of the things he did is he talked to people so he could kind of remember the voice of the person who was on the board, and he remembered where every chess piece was on the board. He was not playing like third grade chess players. Um, I actually did go to a chess tournament, and, I, and Michelle has a picture of it. I lost to a five-year-old kid. <laughs> kind of embarrassing. You know, I wasn't, I was like, anyway. So this guy was actually playing good chess players, and he won 30 of his games. He tied seven of them and he only lost six. Man, that guy has mental genius. Um, anybody that smart in here? I mean, there could be some people that are that smart. You guys are, some of you are pretty smart. How about physical strength? You know, it's a big deal in the Corinthian day. <laughs> this is Brock Lesnar. Now, I got him off a list of 25 really strong people. He's only number 14. I picked him because I know who he is, and some of these things are pretty pretty cool. So he was a college wrestler. He fights in the UFC, and he actually played NFL football. And uh, when he was 6'3", 265 pounds, he bench pressed 475. That's a confirmed bench. They did a documentary about him saying he benched 600 pounds. He can bench um, 44 reps of 225 pounds. That's, that's the bar plus two of those big 45-pound plates. He can bench that 44 times. Um, we got some pretty strong people in this church. Uh, I was really impressed about his, uh, the, the NFL combine, the fact that he ran a 4.7-second uh, 40-yard dash. He could st- do a standing 10-foot broad jump and 35. A five-inch vertical jump. Like, those are amazing statistics. Um, we have some really strong people in this church physically. Uh, you've probably seen them. I don't think they could do these things. Um, what about riches? If God's like, man, I need some smart people on my team, there's a lot of people he could save. If he needed some really strong people, he could do that. What if he's like, man, I want some rich people? I was just thinking about who's really rich. You know Elon Musk right now, I think, is the richest person in the world? He has $212.1 billion. So I was just thinking about what does that mean? Well, he could give every single person in Rancho Santa Margarita $4.3 million. So if you have a family of four, that would be $17.5 million. That's how much money that is. And uh, just so you have a concept of a million dollars, the left, that's a million dollars. Oh, let's see, is it left to you? Yeah. The left is a million dollars. The right is a billion. That's 10 pallets of $100 bills. So we have some rich people in this church. Is there anybody here that's that rich? So when you think about this, God just says to the Corinthians, you guys are not the top of the charts, actually, even compared to other people in, the church, in, in your city that you live in. God didn't save you because of you. He didn't save you because you were amazing. But here's the thing I think is awesome is he says, not many of you. 
See, he saved a bunch of people who were slaves. When you think about the fact that they're slaves and then you read the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about slavery to Christ, and it makes sense to them because they were slaves. But it says not many. Did you know that the gospel is not just for poor people? There are famous power people that God has reached into their life and saved them. You know, George Foreman got into a fight, and he almost died after one of his professional boxing matches, and God saved him. He's now a pastor in a church. George Bush, born to a rich oil family, spent his life drinking and partying. And in 1985, God saved him. Um, Kirk Cameron was a, a, a child famous actor. God saved him when he was 17 years old. And uh, do any of you guys know uh, um, this next lady? She was an actor, or she was a, well, she was a model, a certain type of model, Betty Page. You guys know about her? So she was uh, one headline I saw from porn to born again. And uh, God saved her. She actually graduated from Biola and used to help out in the Jimmy, uh, in, um, oh man, I just forgot, Billy Graham in the Billy Graham Crusades. So God doesn't just save down and out people. The gospel's powerful. It's powerful for anybody. And, but the, the truth is, is that when God saves us, he doesn't save us because of who we are. You know, I know that there are people, and I've heard this many times, that when God was looking for people to save, he looked into the future to see who would save him, who, who would choose him, who would reach out to him. But, you know, the Bible tells us that we are spiritually dead in Ephesians chapter 2. We are spiritually dead. We don't reach for God. In fact, Romans 3.10, this, this verse, this exact passage is quoted three times in Scripture. And it just says, it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, sometimes when people come to us and they're seeking, we think, oh, I don't want to mess this up. The truth is that people do seek. But they seek in response to God drawing. And so when you're talking to somebody and you just feel like, oh, man, they're so close. I don't want to mess it up. The way you make sure you don't mess it up is you faithfully tell them God's word. You don't edit it. You don't change it. You don't modify it. You lay it out in front of them. That's what God has called us to do. So... As we consider all these things, um, man, it is amazing that the understanding the gospel brings humility. Have you ever heard somebody say, there but for the grace of God go I? Have you ever heard anybody say that? See, that is something that flows out of genuine salvation, a genuine understanding of the gospel. When, when if, if, if everybody's in the same place, and somebody presents the gospel, and in a room you got 50 people that receive Christ, and you got 50 people that reject Christ. If it's not God working on the heart, then we could say, hey, I heard the gospel and responded. Joe heard the gospel, and he rejected it. Well, I did better. I'm smarter. I had a more open heart. I was willing to accept Christ, whereas Joe wasn't. 
See, that is not there but for the grace of God go I. When you look at people in the church who are living sinful life, they're not obeying God. And you just think, well, I got more self-discipline. I am more committed than they are. But then you read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You know, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And then what does it say next? Verse 10 talks about that God created good works that we would walk in them. See, God doesn't just bring you to salvation. God allows you to obey. Good works in your life are a reflection of God working in your heart. And so when we look at somebody and we say, there but for the grace of God go I, we don't look at people and think I'm better. You ever get irritated at people in church because they just do such dumb things? They keep doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And you think, I don't do that stuff. And so we're irritated at these idiots that surround us. Instead of being loving and gracious and merciful, knowing that God worked in my heart, God gave me discipline, God's allowed me to believe, God has allowed me to obey, and then we pray and we do in that person's life all the things that God says we're supposed to do, which is to confront sin, which is to teach them what God says, which is to appeal to them, now, having said all these things, I'm kind of emphasizing part of what Scripture says. There's another part of Scripture. God calls us to obey. He calls us to make decisions. Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness? We are not non-participators in life. Philippians 2 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works, but we work. So God, we do participate in life. We do make decisions, but we understand there is this mystery that as we make a diligent effort to obey God, it is God's grace that allows us to do that. And so we're not prideful toward people. We genuinely believe there but for the grace of God go I. And we don't slow down on the things that God tells us to do. Um, look at verse 27. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about the things that are. That's how God works. God just says, I do it, and I get all the credit. And then he goes on, and here's the reason in verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, you who became wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So boasting in the Lord means that he is our treasure. He is the one we value. 
He is who we have confidence in. And um, it's Jesus Christ, verse 30. I think I said you who, and I want to fix that. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom to us. Jesus is the one who has become these things for us. We are in Christ because of Jesus. So here's the second thing. That brings humility. It impacts how we treat people, but this is the other thing it brings. It brings effective ministry. You cannot evangelize when you don't believe correctly about this. I mean, God can work in spite of anything. Um, I've heard of people who are watching heretical um, TV preachers that are just there to rob people and they quote verses and they're just manipulating people and stealing their money. And I have good friends who have become Christians listening to that because anytime somebody reads scripture, it's so powerful that even on the mouth of a heretic, it can save someone. Um, I have a, another lady who was a youth leader for years in our church. She got saved when a Jehovah Witness came to her door. And here's why. She grew up in church. She had heard the gospel. And when a Jehovah Witness showed up and said, Jesus, she filled in. The Holy Spirit filled that in, not with what the Jehovah Witnesses teach about Jesus, but with what she heard growing up as a kid. And God used that Jehovah Witness to prompt her salvation. And so we will not be effective in ministry unless we understand that God saves through his word. Here's the second thing. We've been called to do God's ministry God's way. And uh, Jesus is our message, and he is the foundation for our ministry. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. So pride destroys effective ministry. Pride destroys effective ministry. When, have you ever heard like amazing speakers? When, when people are looking for a pastor, when you're looking for somebody to function in a leadership position, what do we look for? Do we look for people who speak well, who, man, they could tell us a good story, they could make us laugh? Or are we looking for people who trust God and who are faithful to his word? Are we saying, hey, somebody, entertain me. Churches are full of amazingly gifted speakers. I, I, turn on, I turn on the TV sometimes. I don't do this anymore, but I for years would flip on the TV on Sunday morning before I came to church, and I'd watch some of the heretical teachers just preaching. And I, I'm just amazed. Like, like, I listen to some of them, and they come up with so much good stuff. It's not in the Bible, but, man, they come up with good stuff every week. I'm like, man, week after week, how do you come up with such good stuff? And it's so encouraging, and I feel so good listening to it. And I'm just like, it's not in the Bible. I couldn't, I don't have that ability. It is so comforting 
to know that it's not my job to be brilliant. It's my job to be faithful, to read the Bible, to understand it, and to tell people. And um, if we were to just rank um, what we're looking for, that's what we're looking for. When Paul goes to the Corinthian church, so I, I remember one time, when Paul goes to the Corinthian church, he preaches the truth. Now, let me tell this other story. So one time I'm at this conference. I'm one of the speakers at it. And it was like this youth conference. And there was this famous person that has written so many books I can't even count them. He's on the radio. I mean, this guy, has, he preaches to like thousands of people every Sunday. And he was also <laughs> invited to this conference. And it was kind of weird. I'm thinking, why? <laughs> how do I end up on, like, the schedule with this guy? But this was the amazing thing. It was a youth conference. He was talking to a bunch of junior high and high school kids, and he was so out of his element. He was so <laughs> insecure. I mean, it's like he could talk to thousands of adults. He travels all over the world to speak. He gets in front of these high school and junior high kids, and he's intimidated. You want to know what he did? He's like, man, I'm old. You know, he was old back then. What do I have to say to an 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old? This guy's a great preacher, but that was the best sermon I had ever heard him preach. You want to know what he did? He's like, I don't know how, how to help this crowd. I don't know what to say to them, but here's what I do know. I know God's word is powerful. And so he took a passage and he read it, and he explained that passage. He found a passage. It was actually the same passage John preached on um, last week. He just got that passage, and he taught through it, and it was so powerful. And I'm just looking at a guy, you are so talented. You are so gifted. One time I heard, I heard somebody say to him, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? And he said, um, about 30 years and two minutes. Like, he's the kind of guy that would go speak places and sit in the front, and somebody would say, hey, could you preach on this passage? He just changes, sure, no problem. Get up, just blow it out of the water. I remember one time I was sitting in a class with him, and, and I asked him a question about this really challenging passage, and out of nowhere he starts quoting all the Greek and explaining it all to me, and I, I left and went and got a commentary and started reading it, and I'm like, man, this guy said all the stuff that's in this commentary just off the top of his head. But when he was intimidated, what did he do? He just preached the word. And that's what God expects you and I to do. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not just what we're supposed to do. It is what God expects us to do. You know, um, pridefulness destroys ministry. When you think about um, Proverbs 6.16, there are six things that the Lord hates. And what's the very first one? haughty eyes, pridefulness. James tells us that God is opposed to the proud. See, God wants people who are humble, and humility shows itself not in being afraid, not in being not willing to speak up. Humility shows itself in saying, God, you know what you're doing more than I know what I'm doing. And so when I have a chance to speak to somebody, I'm just going to do what you say. I'm parenting my kids. And God's given some instructions on how I'm supposed to parent. But, oh, my goodness, I'm so afraid. I think if I do these things that God said, man, my kids might hate me. They might not like me. That, that might ruin things. Are you humble enough to say, actually, God knows more about parenting than me? 
When, when we're thinking about ministry in the church, sometimes churches are struggling in ministry and they get everyone together and they send them off to some conference at some really large church because that church is successful. They've got lots of people. Instead of saying, man, if we're struggling, if we're having a hard time, what should we do? Well, give me a Bible. Let me open it up. Let me read it. What does God say we're supposed to do in church? Oh, my goodness, that's scary. Because I think if I do these things that God tells me to do, it's going to make people mad. It's not going to work. I mean, I don't think the church is going to grow. I don't think people are going to be saved over this. We've got to do something better. You know, I was thinking about our men's retreat. And one of the things about the men's retreat is we're going off to O'Neill Park, and I've heard that's been really fun when people have done that in the past. And by the way, we're going to have great food. Alex is going to help us with food. And um, the, the theme of this retreat is build the body. <laughs> and Alex is like, okay, no donuts, no junk food, because we're not just going to build the spiritual body. We're going to build the physical body. <laughs> and uh, the cool thing about that is that Alex used people don't know this, well, maybe you don't, but he used to own a restaurant, right? Went to culinary school. Okay, so he's, he's into food. And uh, so the food is going to be awesome. But you want to know something? Our men's retreat is not going to rise and fall with what we eat. It's not going to rise and fall with if we can come up with something really fun to do when we're there. Hey, we want to do that. We want to eat good food. We want to have fun when we're there. But that's not what we're about. So often people have all kinds of struggles and challenges and difficulties fighting over details that don't matter. I heard it this week from a friend of mine that I was hanging out with that some people are straightening picture frames in a burning building. Man, in our life, life is burning. People are headed for an eternity without Christ or with Christ, and we're going to argue and fight and spend time on straightening picture frames instead of just saying, hey, what does God say? So God hates pride. Satan uses pride, and he was using it in the Corinthian church, and they were fighting with each other, and they had all kinds of problems, and they were setting aside the things that God had said because they were proud. And so what does Paul do? Teaches them the doctrine of salvation, which brings humility and then he's going to straighten out all their behavior. But he starts with, are you a Christian? And do you think about being a Christian rightly? Um, let's look at verse chapter 2. Let's just consider a few things here. Verse 1, I'm going to read it again. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We don't mess with that. We don't change it. We don't tweak it. We deliver it the way God gave it to us. What's, what was his manner of ministry? And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It was the Holy Spirit that energized the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, have you ever thought about what it means in a church where pastors have an affair or when pastors are stealing money or when people in leadership positions are compromising? When you realize that nothing I do or say matters without the Holy Spirit, 
that doesn't happen. That only happens when Satan distracts people with their success, when he distracts people with the wrong things, when you don't realize that apart from pleasing God in my inner house, when nobody knows, when nobody's looking, aside from pleasing the Lord in that, there's no effectiveness or power in what I do. And like I said, uh, God used Balaam's donkey. Um, there's people, there are, there are heretics that preach and God saves them, but that is not what we're shooting for. Eventually, God brings those things to light. It is not an accident. When false teachers and people, when these sinful things come to light, God does that. And it's not just pastors and leaders that should live a pure life before Christ. It is every single Christian. Because what we do needs to flow out of the power of the Holy Spirit, not our talent. You want to know what's sad? Sometimes the more talent a person has, the less they realize that they need God's help. And so these people that can fill churches and they can get thousands of people in their crowd, often those are the ones having affairs. And the, the super talented people, the amazingly gifted people are the compromisers because they look at their talent and ability and they think that that is what is going to bring them success. You want to know what's sad? Is how often a pastor will be disgraced because they steal things, because they had an affair, and how many churches try to hire them. Oh, good, they got fired. You know what? They had like 50,000 people in their church. Our church right now has 300. If we could hire them, Hey, because of their compromise, we're not going to have 50,000, but guess what? We could have 5,000. And how they go after these compromising people to try to get them because they want some fame. They want something to be big. They're not interested in spiritual faithfulness. But the Apostle Paul does all this, and he says in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think about my dad becoming a Christian. I went away to college, went to philosophy, uh, took philosophy classes, studied apologetics, um, learned logic, um, and then I went back to talk to my dad. I'm like, man, I have the answers to all the stuff that he used to be able to stump me with. I remember going home and actually having this debate about Christianity, and I won the debate. Like, there was not a single thing that my dad didn't bring up that I couldn't show him the error of his logic. There wasn't a single thing that he said that I wasn't able to say, no, that's not right, this is what's true. And in the end of it, he kind of, like, agreed, which, like, had never happened in my life. But he didn't become a Christian. And I realized it's not me that can argue somebody into heaven. It's actually God who has to work on the heart. So my dad got a stroke. My dad didn't used to go to church. And my dad had a stroke, and so my mom started taking care of him. You know what she did? She just took him to church every week. And he sat up in the front row, like right over here, and just sitting in church, listening to God's word being preached, he got saved. He called me. He's like, Roger, can you baptize me? And I'm like, okay. So what happened? Talking to him. He got saved. You want to know what's so tragic? How many people don't come to church every week? How many people grow up 
And as they're parenting their kids, they don't bring their kids to church every week. They don't teach them to function in church. They don't make sure that they're sitting under God's word. Man, they just leave them at home because they don't want to come. And it's like, man, that is somebody who completely misunderstands the power of God's word and how God intends to work. And sometimes we're shocked. How come nobody's saved? Well, it's because we ignore everything that God says about ministry. And somebody's like, well, the church hurt me. So the church isn't God. The church is full of sinful people. You, you got your feelings hurt. Well, deal with it and go back to church. And if you can't go to that church, go find a different church. But go to church. God's word is powerful. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that really is the foundation of our salvation. It is what Jesus did in dying on the cross to save us. And I want to just read this passage in Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to do um, the elements a little bit different this, this week. So we've been eating out of the, drinking out of the cups and eating the bread out of the little cups, little joint things. We still have those up there. But we're past COVID now. I've decided there's no more COVID. <laughs> So we're going to go back to doing communion the way that we have in the past, and we might still use those cups sometimes. But when the band comes up, I'm going to read this passage, and then when the band comes up, you just pray and think about um, what the Lord has done in saving you. We think about what Jesus did in dying on the cross. And when you're ready, we have tables in the front and in the back, and they've been covered so nobody could sneeze on them. So I guess we're not totally past COVID. But... Um, Go up and help yourself to the elements and then go back to your seat. There's a little circle in the front of you in your chair where you can put your empty cup. Let me read Matthew chapter 26. And this happens right before um, Jesus goes to the cross. So this is kind of preparing for next week. It just says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, teacher, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So this new Christian was asking me, what's with killing all the animals in the Old Testament? And we talked about the Passover because the Passover in the Old Testament was a picture of Jesus and what happened is the angel of death is going over Israel or over Egypt and he is going to kill the firstborn in every house and so they took this innocent lamb they killed this lamb and they took its blood and they put it on the doorposts of the house and if they did that then the angel of death would not kill their firstborn it wasn't because of their righteousness it wasn't because of their goodness it was the blood of this lamb and that is the time that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Do you know why? Because Jesus is that lamb. Jesus is the one that God killed, and your sins were put on Jesus. And because of Jesus, spiritually speaking, and in eternity, God will pass over your sins. See, if it wasn't for that lamb, the blood of that lamb, um, the firstborn would have died. And I just want you to know, if it wasn't for the death of Jesus, 
you would spend forever separated from God in hell. But because Jesus died on the cross, when you accept what he has done by faith, which brings spiritual transformation into your life, when you accept that, when you believe that, God passes over your sins. And that is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, And when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after one another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. I just want to tell you something. You leave this place, you leave this world without knowing Jesus. Your kids leave this world without knowing Jesus. Your friends, your neighbors leave this world without knowing Jesus. I would say it would have been better for them to have never been born. And uh, sometimes we don't talk to our neighbors and we don't talk to our kids and we don't share the gospel with people because... We are afraid that they might not like us or that they might not respond well. Um, This is of eternal significance. It is worth having anybody be mad at you. And it doesn't mean we're a jerk, but it means that we have as our purpose salvation and people genuinely knowing the Lord. Look at verse 26, the bread, it says... As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. We are remembering that Jesus physically died on the cross for us. And he took the cup when he had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again. I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus' blood was spilled for us. We are saved because of what Jesus did. The band is going to come, and they're going to pray. Or they're going to they're gonna sing. Now let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you've died for us. Thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, forgive us for the times that we're careless and that we don't put the gospel in front of people. Lord, forgive us for the times that we're too afraid to tell people because it's more important for us to be liked than it is for us to obey you and for us to do what is in the spiritual best interests of other people. God, sometimes... We don't know. And so, Lord, help us to be a church that is training people. God, I also just ask that you would help each of us celebrate and be thankful for the fact that our standing before you is not based on us. It is not our intelligence. It is not our talent or ability. It is just that you loved us. You loved people that would never have reached toward you, but, God, you reached toward us. And, God, you saved us, and that is so comforting. 
pray that you would help us to just remember and celebrate and be thankful for that in your name. Amen.